Ecclesiastes. Um, kind of, sort of, in chapter 9 this week, verses 11 and 12 is kind of our target verses, but we may move around a little bit. So about uh, six or seven weeks ago, we began a teaching in Ecclesiastes. Uh, uh, Ecclesiastes begins with the words, you know, it's all meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We talked about this idea of meaningless doesn't mean meaningless, it just means vapor, it means temporary. And it was a way of looking at life, the, the master teacher in Ecclesiastes, the church leader, wants to, us to, to take a very critical instructional look at, at this time period between our first breath and our last breath and, and see that this time, to, to, to take a look at this time as, as uncertain, but also as a gift. And if we can see that this amount of time is, is limited and, and, and finite, um, then, then maybe we might could appreciate it more. And so we've, uh, we've talked about seasons and saying, turn, turn, turn. We've, uh, we've looked at a miserable business of, of toil and envy and, and what that means and how that works out. We've talked about true happiness and, and where it comes from. And happiness is being independent from our circumstances. And, and happiness isn't something that this, this world between our first and last breath, can, breath can, can provide. But happiness is a gift from God. And last week... Um, one of my favorite teachings from all time was pushing up daisies, and the teacher took us to the school of death. Do you remember that? Croaking, pushing up daisies, pine overcoat. Um, the, um, Phyllis and Dan told me another one uh, that is local. Uh, we talked about these words for death and dying. A local one to Franklin is the last ride. Is that right? So the, the funeral home is owned by a guy named Clyde. Is that right? So. Oh, he did. <laughs> so anyway, we went to the school of death, and um, the master teacher taught us that, you know, there's this wisdom that comes from considering, remembering that life is temporary and uncertain. Life is a gift. And we talked about this idea of carpe diem, of enjoying your lot. Like, this is what you get. This is the space you get. Sure, you know, maybe your one regret in life is that you weren't somebody else. But, you know, like, no, like, this is what you get. This is your time, and, and, but God has planted in, in each of our hearts the ability to enjoy and celebrate and realize that this moment is good and special and to take advantage of it. So this week, uh, we're going to dive into a, a different theme. Teacher's going to lead us to a different place, so I want to address this theme by just introducing you to a couple of verses. First off, in um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15, he says, I have seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of the wicked. Have you seen this? He goes on in uh, chapter 8, verses 10 and 14. He says, I have seen wicked people buried with honor in the same city where they committed their crimes. This too is meaningless. In verse 14, if you skip down, he goes on and says, and this is not all that is meaningless in our world. This is not all that's vapor. In this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked. And wicked people are often treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. And then in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, I love this. I love this passage. He says, you know, I've looked at everything from I'm, I'm, this perspective of old age. I've, I've seen everything. I've done everything. I've tasted everything. I've bought everything. I've purchased everything. There's nothing in life that I haven't had some experience with. And he says, 
I have observed something else under the sun. He says the fastest runner doesn't always win. And the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry. And the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. People can never predict when hard times might come, like fish in a net or birds in a trap. These are really great images for our life. People are caught by sudden tragedy. There's a quote by um, a linebacker. Um, I think he, he um, who did he play for? Um, man, I can't remember. Uh, the Ray Lewis. Do you guys remember Ray Lewis? Ravens. Oh, linebacker for the Ravens. Oh, wow. Way to go, Christian. Um, oh, who was it? Oh, Josh. Sorry, Josh. I know Christian would not have known that answer. Where is he at? Is Christian in here? Oh, anyway. Um, Ray Lewis played for the Ravens, this linebacker, and one of his kind of famous, famous quotes is, the only thing that follows work is results. Have you heard this? Have you heard this kind of idea? Like, what follows work is results. Uh, I think we live and believe deeply in a kind of cause and effect world. Uh, truly, most of our culture believes in kind of a hard work karma. Uh, and that is to mean, uh, that is to say, if I work hard... If I work hard enough, if I stay up late enough, if I pay the price, if I give it my all, I will be successful. Have you heard wealthy people frequently say this? You know, if you just work hard enough, you'll make it, you'll succeed. But conversely, if you're not successful, well, you probably didn't work hard enough. You didn't pay the price. You didn't put in the time, right? And so these, this, do you see this kind of hard work karma existing in our culture, in our world? Like the harder the work, the more successful you'll be. But if you're not successful, then well, you probably didn't work hard enough, which is a really interesting argument if you take it to any kind of third world country or uh, take it to like migrant workers like in Florida who are picking oranges. You know, the reason you're not successful is because you're not working hard enough, Right? So it's this difficult idea that, that, that the master teacher, at least this idea of what follows work as results, this is what the master teacher in Ecclesiastes is challenging. And this overly simplified view of the world. Look at what he says again. Sometimes the good die young and the wicked live to old age. It sounds like a um, Billy Joel song. You guys know, only the good die young. Am I the only one? Gosh. <laughs> Sometimes wicked people get what good deserve and good get what the wicked deserve. How does that work with our hard work karma, right? Have you seen this happen? Like sometimes the people who shouldn't benefit are the ones who benefit. And the ones, sometimes the, the people that are supposed to get all of the benefit, they get, they get nothing. And, and then to kind of sum it up, I love uh, that, that chapter 9. The fastest runner, the one who is supposed to win, the sure thing, the easy bet, sometimes the fastest runner loses. And this doesn't make sense. And sometimes the strongest fighter loses the battle. And the wise and skillful, the ones who are, are, are smart and hardworking, sometimes they go poor and, and they go hungry. And I, and I love he talks about the educated too. 
like the educated, those who know better, the ones who are supposed to know better, sometimes screw up their lives. Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen this happen? Um, I have lots of stories. <laughs> uh, I worked for a church in, uh, in Pensacola, Florida for a while, and we, we kind of came up with this whole new initiative uh, about a kind of a new direction, a new step for the church. It was really a heavy emphasis on spiritual disciplines. It was, it was something the shepherds and, and the leadership, I was just the lowly youth minister, but it, it was something as the leadership of the church, we, man, it was, seemed so clear and so obvious. This was the direction that God was leading this church. And, and so we kind, of, we, we kind of built this whole initiative and we had a cool name for it called Renovare. And it was all about this renovation of our hearts and the embrace of spiritual disciplines. And man, it, it was so, we, we had prayed for weeks for this and, and we were prepared to launch this whole new step for this church. And we, we paid the money, man. We, we paid advertisers and we built signs and graphics and logos and we promoted it and we called people and we invited people and we did mail outs. We did everything right. And on the kickoff of our first Renovare event, my wife remembers this, man, this was going to be it. This was the next step, something we had been praying and hoping and dreaming and planning for months. The kickoff night of Renovare, only one person came. Um, and she was our best friend. She only came for us. <laughs> um, have you ever had that moment? We, we did everything right. We did everything we could, have th we could think of. And it just fell through. I, uh, I once uh, uh, ran a marathon, or most of it, and I spent months training for a marathon. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a lackluster commitment. I mean, I was putting in 40 miles a week plus running, getting ready. I was, I was covering the distance. I was following my training plan to the letter for months and months and months, I would get up at four o'clock on Saturday morning and go run for three hours to prepare. I mean, I did everything. And the day of the race, my marathon day, I was running and man, for the first 17 miles, I was cooking and felt perfect and felt great. And then something happened. I got heat stroke. And um, when you get heat stroke, apparently... Um, your organs, um, they kind of turn off. And my kidneys stopped working completely. And uh, I did finish the race, which I'm proud of. Uh, my wife's going, I told you. Um, but anyway, I actually ended up in the ER, which is not exactly what, what I had planned or expected. But I had done everything right, right? I had done the work. I did all the training. Where was the result? Uh, maybe I'm nervous to tell you this story, but I, I've ever told you the time I got fired. So uh, I was working for this church, who shall go unnamed. And um, they, were they were going through a rough time. They were. Uh, I was a youth minister at the church at the time. It was, and it was a, just a difficult time for the leadership, for, for the whole church. But my student ministry, man, it was rocking. It was killing it. Uh, we were, it was one of the really, you know, talk about celebrating the wins. What was happening in the student ministry was really positive and good and, and helpful. And we were kind of scheduled to have this big meeting, like, what are we going to do meeting with our shepherds that night, right? All the ministers were coming and our elders were coming to this big meeting. And um, it was supposed to be on Wednesday night and we had a youth event 
And so I was leaving my youth event to get in my car and drive to the meeting, and there were elders standing around my car. And I jokingly said, hey, man, what's this mean? Am I the one who's getting fired? And they all just looked to the ground. And I thought, I am the one getting fired. And uh, they kind of took me back into the youth, uh, youth house, and uh, they said, you know, long story short, you're the low man on the totem pole uh, with our ministry staff. This is a termination without cause, which the cause was they were crazy and that church was upside down at, at the time. That, and I kind of said, it was two weeks before Christmas, no notice. And they said, uh, don't call. Just uh, We know you're going home for Christmas. Just might as well don't even come back. And um, I called my wife on the way. I called Amy on the way home, and it was done. It was like, Psh, okay, done, fine. I called Amy on the way home, and I said, I got fired. And she's like, well, I've cried wolf kind of a, <laughs> a bunch of times. So she didn't, no, you didn't. I'm like, no, <laughs> really? This is going to be interesting. And uh, uh, this is a huge long story, and I don't have time to tell you at all. But long story short, the, the elders of the church called me back three days later and said, oh, just kidding. Um, and uh, you're not really fired. You're okay. We've done some different stuff with some different staff. And it was just a sign of some real uh, unhealthy leadership that was happening there. And we continued to work there for years. Um, but um, have you ever been in one of those experiences where you do everything right and the bottom still falls out? What happens when the company you've served faithfully for years lets you go? What happens when you graduate from college expecting a career and a whole new life and no one will hire you? What happens when you expected to have kids and a family, but now you're in your mid-30s and you're still single? What happens when you live a healthy lifestyle, take care of yourself, eat right, exercise, and after a routine doctor's visit, doctor checkup, doctor's checkup, he gives you a report that you weren't expecting? What happens when you carefully consider each and every contingency and make very thoughtful, wise investments and they don't pay out? Here's one. What happens when the candidate you hoped for, petitioned for, doesn't get elected? In fact, the opposite happens and the wickedest candidate, using Ecclesiastes language, gets elected. Now, Regardless of who you vote for this year, in some of your minds, this is going to happen. Am I correct? <laughs> what then? Um, I love a, you know, are you going to revoke your citizenship and take all your toys and move to Canada and never come back? Have you heard this? <laughs> there you go. Uh, honestly, I... I this may, be, this may be too critical. Maybe you've said something like that. But if you have, I, I think that's probably incredibly juvenile. Um, but it's that kind of idea. Uh, th this kind of idea, this is exactly the kind of response of, well, I'm taking my toys and I'm going home, that the master teacher wants to highlight in Ecclesiastes. There's a great line from a poem by Robert Burns. Um, it was written in 1785, and even though it's so old, you, you all know this line. You've all heard it before. The story goes that, that Robert was plowing a field when he ran over a mouse house, like a mouse nest. You know, they will build kind of these nest things. And the plow upturned or destroyed this mouse's den 
this den that the mouse had worked tirelessly to prepare, this den, this house of of, of, of grass and fur that he needed to, like the mouse was going to need this to survive the winter. And the legend says that as Robert looked at the destroyed mouse house, he wrote this line that you all know, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry or often go askew. In today's parlance, we might simply call it Murphy's Law, Right? You familiar with this? Murphy's Law states, despite all your hard work, despite all your effort to kind of control and manipulate the end result, if it can go wrong, it will. Just curious, let me ask um, some of our Horizons uh, adults, some of our senior adults, through all of your life, of, of lives well lived, what percentage of the time did your children turn out exactly how you raised them? Um, in all your, your well-lived years, how often did your children make choices you would have chosen for them? Are we even 50% of the time? Are we hopeful? Despite all your best efforts, how often did things go as you planned? What would you say? What percentage of the times did things turn out exactly the way you expected, exactly the way you worked? In all your years of, of living, how much control did you really have over the end result? See, I think as human beings, we are predisposed to control. I want to control the results, don't you? given the opportunity of giving control to someone else or, or myself controlling it, nine times out of, ten times out of ten, what am I going to do, right? Remember the, Lake, the Ray Lewis quote, what follows work is results. We desperately want to and believe that through our hard work, we can secure for ourselves the outcome, the future of our choosing. It is this desire, not the desire for wealth. We've talked about wealth. It's, it's not the desire for wisdom that the teacher warns us about this time. This time, the teacher warns us about our desire for control. Like this desire for control present, poses a real threat to our life, and it's dangerous in a couple of ways. An overly heavy emphasis on control, on outcomes, is itself a form of idolatry. And we have it bad. This desire is more contagious than the flu. Look at how we live. I got this. I can handle it. Wasn't that the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? I can eat this. No worries. I got things well under control. Everything is under control. If there's anything I want, I can earn it, right? Isn't that kind of an undercurrent of, of, of our culture? You know, if you just work hard enough, you can achieve anything. You can gain anything. You can control the outcomes. You can achieve it. You can overcome it. Given the opportunity to, to live in a neighborhood where you're forced to interact with people around you or live in the middle of 250 acres, which would you choose? <laughs> Be honest. See, we, are, we have become fiercely independent. 
Would you rather captain your own ship or, or be dependent on others? And that fierce independence, there is a danger there that the author of Ecclesiastes wants to make us aware of. Our desire to control outcomes and events and results. Do you think the majority of Americans believe that God is necessary to achieve true happiness? Or can we get it on our own? What do you think? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, do Americans really believe it? Do you? A desire to control outcomes is idolatry, is a form of idolatry, because God is replaced with self. Do you see that? Every time we lean on ourselves more than God, every time we trust ourselves, our own ability, our own intellect, our own strength, our own skills, our own experience to achieve the desired outcome, it displaces God. Suddenly our trust is shifted from Him to a deep trust, independence trust of ourselves. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, Whoa, be careful. Your desire to control outcomes can be really dangerous. It's dangerous in another way too. Not only is it idolatrous, but the desire to control results outcomes is dangerous uh, because such a heavy focus on some future result may cause us to miss the gift of the present moment, right? And this present moment gift is an important theme in Ecclesiastes. Jesus tells this story about a wealthy farmer. Do you remember this story? Uh, Man, he's doing really well. In fact, he's doing so well. One barn is completely full of everything of his harvest, of everything he's collected. But he's doing so well, he's made a choice to build a second barn. And as Jesus tells this story, this, this farmer says, man, once I get this second barn, I can just sit back and retire and relax, have a cocktail, prop my feet up. I can just coast. Life will just be good from that point on. And what happens to him that very night? Do you remember And all of his hope and thinking and dreaming and planning for the future, all of his desire for some future event, where, what has it left him with? And Jesus says, man, it's, it's foolish to pursue these temporary things. It's foolish to pursue this kind of future that may or may not come and miss the moment that God has given you right here, right now. How many of you are working long hours to provide a better life for your kids in the future? And at the same time, missing seeing them grow up now. I'm nervous for us. I see in our culture sometimes that we are far too willing to sacrifice this moment our lot in life. That's another big theme in Ecclesiastes. Hey, right now, this is the chance. This is what you get. But we've become far too willing to sacrifice this moment for the possibility of some future moment. A moment that may or may not come. Am I right? What happens if we forget that life is uncertain? It doesn't turn out like you hoped, dreamed, or planned, or worked for. What happens then? 
So what's the message here today? Um, it's difficult. <laughs> It'd be easy to kind of walk away and say, okay, well, Adam's telling us, you know, to just carpe diem, and, but don't try, don't plan, don't save, don't prepare, don't work. Um, that's not really the message. Uh, because even the teacher in Ecclesiastes is going to say, you know, plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another or maybe both. Like the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is not opposed to work. He's not opposed to, to effort. And I don't want to discourage hard work um, or your instinct to hard work. I, I believe in work. I believe it, it's good. But this desire for some future event, can you make a distinction, can get you in trouble if you're not careful. Can you make that distinction? Can you make that separation? I want you to work for the future, but I also want you to be aware of how that desire for some future event is affecting you. Beware of your desire to control or manipulate results. You know who you are. <laughs> Beware of pinning your happiness to a particular outcome. The teacher of Ecclesiastes says, man, if you're living only for some future moment and missing this moment now, it's like your, your life is like chasing after the wind. Instead, I would encourage you to remember the ways of God are incredibly elusive and difficult to understand. Things are not always black and white. Hard work doesn't always give you the results you want or think you deserve. And when you do good things, sometimes you're not going to get good results. You know, I, I hear this question sometimes in faith conversations, theological conversations, especially with young believers, which is, why do bad things happen to good people? And I want to say, grow up. Get a life. Does your world work so simply that, you know, good things only happen to good people? And, you know, they, that's, that's the kind of attitude the teacher of Ecclesiastes wants to address. Like, no, man, things are more complicated than that. And we can't possibly understand all the ways that God is moving and acting and living and, and, and all the different things that are happening in your world. Life is difficult. I attributed this verse to Ecclesiastes forever, but it actually comes from the very words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Speaking of life and, and how difficult it is to understand, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself says, God gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Does that seem like a really simplified view of the world, right? Like, no, things are, things are difficult. In Ecclesiastes, in chapter 11, verse 5, he says, Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. And what that is supposed to drive us to is to remember that life is uncertain. Right? You're not guaranteed the next moment or the next day. It's uncertain. And if we can, it, not in some sort of morbid way, but if we can latch onto with, it, with, our, with our intellect and with our emotions, the uncertainty of life, then all of a sudden life in every moment and every day becomes incredibly precious. Do you see how that works? 
So don't sacrifice the value of this moment for some future moment that may or may not come. Don't practice this kind of idolatrous reliance on self constantly, but instead rest in God. There's this great song that's on Way FM all over the place right now called Good, Good Father. Have you heard this song? Do you believe that God knows what you need before you ask? Do you believe that you can trust Him with your future? Do you believe you can trust Him with with the outcomes of your results? Or do you have to maintain them and hold them and steer them and drive them? Can you trust Him despite the circumstances? Can you be okay internally and still at peace and still trust God if the person you voted for isn't elected? Can you be okay? Or are you still trying to desperately have some control over the future? I invite you to trust God again with your outcomes. I invite you to let go of control. I invite you to trust God again. Remember what Jesus said. I will never leave you or forsake you. So each week, as it's our tradition, is to come around the table of communion, to come around the Eucharist, the the table of uh, of thanksgiving. And uh, we have tables set up around the room with the elements of communion, the the cup and the bread. And in just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer and invite you to enjoy a time of communion, to get up and make space. And when you come to this communion, Jesus invites you to bring something, okay? He invites you to come and bring and lay down on this table anything you've been holding on to. Maybe you're pinning your hopes to a specific result. Maybe, maybe you're, you're holding on to something, desperately trying to stay in control of something. Is there an area of your life you're, you're desperately trying to manipulate and drive something that you haven't trusted him with because you have got this and, and I got this and I, I, can, I can do it myself. Is there an area of your life, of your heart, of your schedule that you simply need to lay on the table and turn over to God? It's a difficult teaching. I told the worship team before I came out here that I said, uh, I think given, um, given my own, own, own guys without the leadership of, of our shepherds who are super faithful, I would, I would steer and manipulate and drive and uh, control every aspect of Aspen Grove Christian Church. And it would all be for the absolute best intentions. And I, and I would drive us and I would steer us as a church exactly to the place I think we would need to go. And in doing so, may very well miss the place God is inviting us to go. Is there an area of your life that you're desperately trying to control that you need to lay down, that you need to turn over to God? In just a moment, I'll give you a chance to take communion. Will you pray with me? 
Father God, we come before you and we sing songs about, man, giving you our life and, and trusting you. And these words are incredibly easy. <laughs> They're easy to say, but God, it's so difficult. God, there's, there's I, I, I don't know, I don't want to presume, but I, I imagine there's not one of us in here that isn't, isn't trying to control, manipulate some sort of result, outcome in our life. There, there hasn't been a time when we, we haven't tried to <laughs> steer things to the result, the, the, this outcome that we wanted and hoped for. And God, more times than not, I've pinned my, I've pinned my hopes and dreams on something specific, and that thing hasn't come through. Father God, I pray that you would examine our hearts that, that right now as we enter in this time of communion to remember your son Jesus and, and his incredible sacrifice for us. God, that it would be a time for us to lay down these things. Lay down our, our, our control, lay down the, our desire for results. And, and in that moment, God, let us trust you with decisions and future and all of these kind of things. Let us trust you with relationships and schedules God, let us, let us rest in you in, in a new kind of way. Let us exhale all of this, uh, this pent-up energy in us and embrace again your spirit, a spirit that invites us to rest, a spirit that invites us to trust. Father God, let us be a people again who trust you with everything. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus, and his incredible sacrifice for us. Because of his sacrifice, he's worthy. I'm not worthy to be trusted, and, and neither are, are many of us. But because of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, we know he is someone we can trust our lives to. And so, Father God, as we come before you, help us. Help us. We love you, Father. And in your son, Jesus' name, everyone together says, Amen. I invite you to enjoy a time of communion together.